0: Welcome to the Wild West podcast, where today I'm excited to be joined by my two guests, Scott Johnston and Steve House, who co authored a new book called Training for the Uphill Athlete. It's basically a manual on how to properly train for endurance activities in the mountains. So, ultra marathons, ski mountaineering, trail runs, that kind of thing. But it's not just for hardcore mountain athletes. Scott and Steve strike a nice balance in the book of providing scientific information on things like aerobic conditioning and muscle recovery. And then personal essays from athletes on how they train and what they go through mentally that makes the book really relatable.
1: We're like the anti stink oil. We're like, this is, this is the way real athletes train. And it doesn't matter if you're Michael Phelps or Michael Jordan. If you want to get better at your athletic performance, this is the way you would approach the training part. But it also works for somebody who hasn't walked up a flight of stairs in 10 years. The, the body works the same way for everyone. That voice
0: you just heard was steve house he's a longtime professional rock climber and mountain guide from colorado he's got a long list of accolades scott johnston his co-author is a multi-sport athlete and a renowned fitness coach he's trained all kinds of athletes from olympic skiers to everest climbers five years ago the two of them wrote a similar manual style book called the new alpinism it's about training to climb mountains and it was so successful that they returned for round two here with their new book which, as I said, is geared toward more endurance sports in the mountains. Oh, and before I forget, the third author on the book is none other than Killian Jornet, the stud Spanish mountain runner. He couldn't join us for the podcast, but Scott and Steve were able to join me in the Chronicle studio, and we had a great conversation. It's less about the ins and outs of physiology or giving performance tips, and it's more about how with these books, they're really cutting through the BS of all the fitness fads out there. So the three of us dive into the way that the industry sells fitness as this whole lifestyle and how people have come to express their personal values and identities through physical activity and how we can all kind of get perspective on that. It's a fun little referendum on the fitness industry, I think. It's a great listen for anyone who feels that pressure to exercise and stay fit that I think most of us feel. And then it's also good for people who want to get more serious about preparing for a larger goal, like say, running a marathon. So stick around. We'll get to my conversation with Steve and Scott in just a minute, but first this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with authors Steve House and Scott Johnston. Well, welcome to the podcast, guys. It's good to have you both here. Thanks. Thanks very much. I appreciate you getting us on. First, I wanted to ask you, you narrow it, you narrow down your training principles in these books to three that are continuity, modulation, and gradualness. And so I wondered if you could just explain that a little bit and talk about why those three things kind of, you know, cut through.
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that um, is important to keep in mind that our books are written with the express purpose of training people as if they were athletes preparing for a thing and some sort of event. Um, they're not general fitness, they're, which is what separates us from these fitness fads that you were talking about. Where And there's nothing necessarily wrong with those. They're just not the same approach that an athlete would use. And I think that's what's been kind of the misconception. And the public's eye is the difference between someone who's just uh, uh, wants to be fitter and someone who is actually focused on a perf- uh, performance goal somewhere out in the future. And so the, those three principles, um, the uh, continuity being the first of them, are important because without these three things, you can't have a training plan. And what an athlete has is a training plan that is continuous, it modulates the load and it gradually progresses in load over a long period of time. And that's quite different than what most people think of as uh, when they think of fitness training, which is much more like just randomized exercise. So in other words, the training plan that's written for an athlete starts out at a load that the athlete can just barely tolerate. But as the athlete becomes fitter, the load has to increase over time to, um, to keep uh, challenging them and giving them the appropriate adaptations. So continuity plays the key role in that you can't have big disruptions. Um, you know, everyone gets sick or has a few things that go on for them where they miss a day or two here or there, but in general, the you've got to stick with this plan and do the, the training on the days that, that are, um, that are, where it's laid out. And we generally say that, you know, if a person misses more than two days in a week of training that they would want to have to repeat that that week. Okay. So it's, it's that strict. Yeah. And then the modulation component plays a role because the way we adapt to physical stress is that when we train or exercise, it puts some systems in our body into kind of a crisis state because they're not prepared to handle that load. And when we remove that stress, then the body will adapt to the stress that it was just uh, exposed to given the appropriate amount of time. And some of these adaptations take place in a matter of a few hours and some take months to, to occur. So the training load, needs to modulate in a way that allows for this adaptation to take place. You can't just keep doing harder and harder and harder every single day, or you'll actually get weaker because it's the recovery period when these adaptations take place. Um, they don't take place. They're, they're caused and stimulated by the training, but they they take place some number of hours and days afterwards. And then finally, the progression, which I alluded to earlier, is the gradually, I mean, we will adapt to the stress if we're given enough time um, and, the, and the load, the increase, the incremental increase in load is small enough. So we want to gradually over time increase the training load so that <clears throat> what was you know, once an impossible load two or three months ago now is something that may not even be enough to stimulate these adaptations we're looking for, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So, like you said, this is these books are geared toward um, more you know high level athletes that are like objective driven goal oriented um, are going to you know hit some peak
1: level of performance right I would only object to the high level part because all humans adapt in the same way at the same rate, so you know of course there 's variations based on genetics and you know, athletic history of an individual, but this this works for everyone. We we want people to understand that there is a very well established intellectual framework for how improving one's physical performance works, how training works, and it's it's not really that controversial and it's not really that new. It's been around more or less for a hundred years now, and of course, some you know we figured out a few small things here and there a little better over the course of those decades but there's n- i guess i also like to think of ourselves we're, we're like the anti snake oil we're like this is this is the way real athletes train and it doesn't matter if you're michael phelps or michael jordan if you want to get better at your athletic performance this is the way you would approach the training part but it also works for somebody who hasn't walked up a flight of stairs in 10 years that the body works the same way for everyone Yeah, that was actually what I found to be useful about it as somebody who
0: lives in the city and isn't necessarily training for one major goal or performance was it just gave me a very basic understanding for how I can go about even conceiving of like kind of constructive exercise. And it made me wonder if there is a way in which there's something like inherent in having that framework that can help uh, the average person like gauge or judge a new fitness idea or exercise idea as it emerges. So I guess part of what I'm asking is whether there's something useful about this framework that the average person can use to like better understand whether a new fitness fad or something else that comes along is worth pursuing or could be legitimate without, you know, just diving headlong into it. Sure. I I think that the, the whole The fitness industry has exploded
2: in the last couple of decades. And it's great that people are interested in improving their fitness and just generally being more active. And there's nothing at all wrong with that approach. And so I think that um, I want to, I think we both want to be quite clear that, so Peloton. Or, you know, we could list off quite a few yeah. other activities. Like, that. there's nothing wrong with those. I mean, and if that's your main form of exercise and it's motivating and socially fun for you to do that, Those, that's great. But what we've tried to, dre- to create is uh, the knowledge base that allows people to say, okay, that is over here in this exercise category. That is not the way you know, a marathoner would train to go out and run a good marathon. And we're trying to make that distinction and and help people understand why it is. And the most common, I would say, distortion that's taken place in the fitness industry is that when it comes to endurance, you can somehow replace duration of training with intensity of training and so and that's very appealing to the modern person who's very busy doesn't have a lot of time and when they read some magazine article that says this 15 minute workout is actually better for you than going out and running for two hours they're going to jump on that idea and once again you know that 15 minute workout is certainly better than sitting on the couch but if you're training for a marathon you better be able to go out there and run those two hours yeah and i think that what that that has been the probably the biggest misconception that the general public has been sold over the past couple of decades by the fitness industry. And we make quite clear, and I think you probably read this in the physiology section of the book, that you know, there's a time and a place and there's an appropriateness for intensity high-intensity training it definitely serves a very valuable purpose for all endurance athletes but it trains a completely different metabolic system in your body than is required for long duration activities and what we like to say is that high-intensity is a supplement to the base training it's not a replacement for it and that's the way endurance athletes train you know in, in they train predominantly at a rather low to moderate intensity for a high volume and they supplement it with 10 to 20 percent of a higher intensity training during their, the course, like the course of over a whole training cycle. And so, what we've that's probably if a person can understand that concept and understand why that's true, um, I think it arms them a little bit with this knowledge of saying when they're being told that, you know, this, do this know three five minute workouts a week and somehow that's actually going to prepare you for the the local 10 kilometer running race it's probably not going to happen yeah <laughs> i mean it's just we don't we don't adapt like that we've evolutionarily evolved from probably hunter-gatherers where we were roaming around you know for hours and hours all day every day and that's kind of our genetic predisposition as homo sapiens is endurance. I mean, we have one of the most hot, we have probably the best endurance of
0: any animal on the planet. This book made me wonder about how this fun disconnect between endurance, which we've been designed for, and a lot of the, I think, common approach to exercise and fitness that at least I think I see, you know, again, living in the city where we don't have access to like wonderful trail systems and mountains and things like that that are you know, accessible right after work or whatever. And in that uh, sort of culture, you have people who are like, all right, I gotta go get my 45 minutes in at the gym today. Which like you said, is better than nothing. But it also like, runs directly counter to what we've been designed to do with these like, longer term performances. I wonder how you <laughs> if you sort of see that disconnect as well.
2: Oh yeah, and it's a true dilemma. I mean, not only for people living in the city, but people who are really have busy lives They say, well, I can't run hundred miles a week. Even if my body would allow me to do it, I don't have time to run hundred miles a week. So I'm driven towards substituting these shorter, higher intensity workouts. And once again, I, I would say that that's fine. It's certainly, it's valuable training, but it's not a substitute for this and you won't achieve your optimal performance. With that methodology, Um, that's been proven in conventional endurance training sports for decades. That there's been this tension between how much high intensity versus how much low intensity an endurance athlete should um, should do in their training, and it's been pretty well resolved for the last probably 15 plus years now that the the balance turns out to be the sort of this 80, 20, 90, 10 type balance Mm -hmm. where the bulk of the training is done at this rather slow, boring pace. (laughs) And so if you've only got 45 minutes, then you you either need to decide you take up a different sport (laughs) or that maybe, you know, you're going to be satisfied with less than optimal training,
1: which is fine. And I want to jump in and add that, you know, we cover sports from, you know, mountain running, ski mountaineering, ski mountaineering racing, uh, and then all of the climbing disciplines from alpine climbing, high altitude mountaineering, all the way down to, like, rock climbing, sport climbing. And so, you know, we're big fans of goal setting, but we're also big fans of being realistic. So if somebody comes to us and they say, okay, I want to run 100 miles, but I live in the city and I work 70 hours a week and I travel every every weekend or whatever – It's like, well, you know, what I tell a lot of those people, if they come with something that sounds a little unrealistic to my ear, is to try to find a skill-based activity or sport. For example, even within that umbrella, rock climbing, you know, you spend probably 75% of your training time, quote unquote, actually rock climbing. Okay, it's in a gym, it's inside, because the skill component of that sport is so high Mm -hmm. that you have to combine actual climbing put meaning putting on climbing shoes and bouldering or climbing lead routes or whatever in a climbing gym uh with some additional supplemental, you know, strength training and those kinds of things but for the most part you're still kind of actually doing something pretty close to your sport and I think that that that's a good approach for people who um ha, you know, you just got to you, you got to work with what you got. And so if you can get to a climbing gym but you can't get to like the the trails out in the county out in Marin County, then maybe that's a better choice. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, our our new book is training for the uphill athlete. It's definitely targeted at right uphill locomotion because that's where you can save the most time. Because that's where you spend the most time. Like even on a mountain run or ski ski touring, ski mountaineering. I mean, most your time is going uphill because that's the hard part. Right, going down is relatively fast and easy. So we still have to address that, but it's. You know, easier to do. But we, we originally come from both climbing backgrounds and we've been, that's actually kind of where we got our start within, within training and coaching is with climbers. And it is a highly skill-dependent sport.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask about that really quickly because the book is called Training for the Uphill Athlete. But I find that running downhill is a little harder on my legs. Like it's a little more brutal and I have to actually be more conscientious of how I go about doing it. And Killian and some other uh, of the, the essayists in the book mention this. But I was just curious if there are any, <laughs> if you guys have taken that into account.
2: Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, technically, it, it's, a, it's technically a demanding part of the sport. Um, but it's also, I mean, you can think of the, the uphill component of these sports as being primarily cardiovascularly demanding. And that's what's going to get your heart rate up and your breathing up. And the downhill, especially in the running, but also in skiing, is primarily a neuromuscular training effect. In mm-hmm. other words, it's mostly a strength training effect. And, I mean, as you probably know, when maybe you're running up the hill at 150 heart rate, but when you turn and come back down, you might be running back down at 100, even if you're running hard. Because the, the gravity is doing most of the work for you and yeah. you, your, your legs are actually having to resist the gravity. And that kind of loading on the muscles called eccentric loading, where the muscle is shortening under load, uh, excuse me, lengthening under load as opposed to shortening under load. And that is really stressful on muscles they can get they can absorb a lot of impact that way but it also does a fair bit of damage and if you've ever run much downhill when you haven't been running downhill very often you know that the next day a couple of days your legs are really sore especially your quadriceps yeah yeah and so for people who are serious about mountain running especially if they have racing in mind there's special workouts that people like that will engage in just to develop that sort of eccentric strength in their legs
1: yeah Interesting. It's the same thing with mountaineers that we work with. You know, the downhill is one thing, but the, 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 uphill, the, or the uphill is one thing, but the downhill is also really stressful. On the, Especially the because of they're often body. carrying a, a heavy pack. Yeah, right. Um, well, to get back
0: to, you know, how to, how to conceive of these um, training goals when you're somebody who's living you know, in the Bay Area, for example, in the city, don't have access to like these um, outdoor areas right outside your doorstep. One of the essays that I found most interesting in this book was from John Kelly, Barclays marathoner, who described training for Barclays, like from his home in Washington, DC, where it's super flat, and he doesn't have a bunch of hills or mountains. And that was kind of an interesting little lesson for it was like this nice little experiment of how training can actually, like training in gyms and training in these flat places can actually prepare you for, you know, an uphill endurance event if you, uh,
1: you know, even if you don't have those those assets at your disposal. Yeah, if you're as strongly motivated as John yeah. is and was, then, I mean, you can overcome a lot in terms of geography.
0: <laughs> it did seem like it took a lot on his part to, and a ton of time and a ton of, you know, advanced planning and all of these things for him to be able to pull that off, but yeah. But he pulled it off and, you know,
1: won the race. So, yeah, pretty commendable.
0: Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you guys, are there things that you commonly see people doing wrong when they're training? What are some of the training myths that you guys love to dispel or that you frequently run into when talking with people?
1: I'll, I'll just throw out, I mean, there's a, there's quite a few, but I think one Scott mentioned is uh, supplement replacing or mixing up the roles of intensity and duration in terms of training time uh, as that that component of the training load but i would say the number one thing is consistency people you know and related to that is the time frame that people think of it in especially i know in my my background is originally from climbing and so people think oh i'm going to train for two weeks it's like well no two weeks isn't training like (laughs) you know, let's, let's think about 16 weeks. Let's think about 24 weeks. What are your, what do you want to do? Where do you, what do you want to be doing physically with your sport in three years, five years? Let's talk about that. That's the kind of approach that's really, really effective. If you can organize your life around it in such a way that you can hit six workouts a week Mm -hmm. for every week for multiple years. Now we're talking about like astronomical changes in one's physical performance. And I think that that's the biggest thing. And I think it's a little bit the quote-unquote fitness industry, emphasis on industry, is to blame because they, they – you know, it's, it's clickbait. It's, it's the, it's the overnight sensation. It's the quick results. Yeah. People, seven minute ads. It's a thing that you can sell. Yeah. It's yeah. It's these sort of false promises of these super short timeframes. And so people's, uh, time, people's expectations are often a little unrealistic. Whereas if you can get them to think like, oh wow, okay. Six months. Yeah. Like next October, I want to be able to do this. And I I really want to do that. So I'm going to organize some of my schedule around that. Now we're, now we're cooking with gas, as they say, right? Like, um, and that's, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions I see is people just don't have the right time frame. Yeah. Scott, what about you?
2: I think that, and I would say that in just in general, having people's expectations in line with their commitment. Because if you can get the expectations and the commitment to kind of balance out, then they're going to be happy. But we have oftentimes have people coming to us with tremendously high expectations, but either with low commitment or with just grandiose notion of what they could or should be able to do because they just saw something on YouTube or they just read an article about something Killian did, and now they want to do that. And yeah. they don't realize that he's just spent, you know, he spent 25 years getting to that point. And a lot of these things that that become, as Steve was saying, clickbait. You don't see the thousands of hours that people put in to being able to do a one-arm pull-up or whatever these things are that look so amazing when we see them performed. And yet we will get people who, as Steve alluded to earlier, they're working 60 to 70 hours a week and they want to climb Mount Everest. And they haven't, because they've been so successful in their professional career, their physical fitness over the middle part of their life now has deteriorated dramatically. But they have this notion that, well, I'm successful professionally, I should be able, and I saw this on, I read this in a magazine, I should be able to do that. And they probably could, but we have had people come to us in that situation two months from leaving for Everest and ask us to help them. (laughs) And we would say, I'm sorry, you should have thought of this two years ago. And then we could have actually really done something for you because as we said earlier some of these adaptations and especially the ones around the aerobic system that need to be developed to promote endurance take literally months and months to maximize or they can actually go on for years and years before they're fully maximized but to make a significant change can take months with and and especially if you're starting with someone who's at quite a low level so i would say it's this expectation thing has been our probably one of the biggest hurdles that we've had to deal with since we our coaching business started up a few years ago because my background has been in training elite level endurance athletes. And for them, the commitment is there. That's not the problem. And in fact, most of the time, the, the job of the coach with athletes like that is to restrain them from doing too much so they don't injure themselves or overtrain. But So this has taken a little bit of a mind shift for us to understand that people were coming in and with, you know, never having had crampons on their feet and thinking they were going to leave for Everest in a few weeks Mm -hmm. and that they might have an actual good chance of climbing
0: it. Are there any technological or sort of high-tech devices or solutions or apps that you guys have found useful that you
1: incorporate into your, you know,
0: your daily, your day-to-day training regimens?
1: Absolutely. I think they're they're actually pretty basic ones. Heart rate monitors with a chest strap, mm-hmm. The wrist, wrist-borne monitors aren't really accurate enough yet for what we're doing, um, and Jeep, good old GPS. So we, we do all of our uh, distance coaching via an app called Training Peaks, which is a Boulder-based company, which was originally started by a coach and his cyclists, um, because the cyclists were over in Europe racing, and the coach was back in Boulder, and so... Um, started out like all great apps as a spreadsheet Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, developed from there and that is those kinds of things that offer some uh, algorithms that uh, take data like heart rate pace uh, distance and those things and churn it into through some algorithm and give you some kind of gauge uh, are incredibly valuable as long as you're but just to you. Like, they're not useful in terms of tools of comparison between athletes or those sorts of things. But okay. for, um, Training Peaks in particular is actually the basis of our remote coaching business. I mean, we have well over 100 athletes that we coach through that system. And without that system, frankly, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I had an idea that I just wanted to run past you guys, I guess. This comes back to maybe the sort of the fitness industry. And I think we have sort of a way of linking our exercise routines to like a broader fitness attitude. And then from there, we go to what that says about our values as individuals. And without too long, I start to question like my entire existence and identity as a person based on what kinds of physical activity I'm doing and how much. And I guess that is maybe a function of, like you guys said, this broader fitness industry. But fitness is sold today as this way for us to fully realize our individual potential and like our true selves. And that just is a lot of weight to carry anytime you're thinking about like whether to go for a run or not or what you're going to do today to break a sweat. And so I I guess I just wonder what what you could say to people to try to help cut through all of that noise to give them a little bit of perspective on all of this.
1: Boy, that's you're you're hitting the nail on the head there because, um, you know, we're very tribal and at the end of the day and people identify with you know, what they do. It becomes part of our identities and both Scott and I originally uh, come from climbing. I mean, that's a very tribal culture as well. Like, Like I would identify myself and as a climber like that's my culture it's my friends it's like how it's like how my whole life is shaped by that sport and so i i'm just as kind of guilty of that as anyone else because that's my that's my thing that's my shtick um so in a way i don't really think anything there's anything wrong with it and this is the reason i think you know it's how you know i'm I've been a professional climber since my 20s. I'm in my late 40s now. And it's how I not only stay happy and healthy, but it's also like who my friends are, as I said, and it's how I stay motivated. Like it's how I kind of keep from going down that deep, into that deep pit of existential despair, if you will, like, you know, kind of giving up on life. What is the meaning of it all kind of thing? Because you can do that. And I think it's, you know, part of sort of, postmodern culture that we live in it's like it's pretty easy to kind of come to that conclusion so you know staying in touch with my friends that are also climbers and finding out how they're doing on their projects and like how their training's going and oh how's that uh, you know sore finger going or you know the injury or what you know how's your project or are you getting strong you know all those things i mean it, it kind of becomes like my little uh like balm <laughs> against that sort of Like existential pit of despair for lack of a better word it keeps me motivated keeps me happy keeps me like going out and doing my training even though it's completely meaningless to everybody but me (laughs) and you know it's it's fun and you know it's that's also probably part of the reason you know for for life is to just have fun so um i say that you know yeah it's all part of it it's best when it's not somebody else's uh, pyramid marketing scheme that you're falling into. But as long as you're having fun and it's keep making you healthy, like go for it.
2: Yeah. I think also what I see happening with some of the folks that I coach, even at a very high level, is that I think social media has caused a lot of pressure on people that you know, even as innocuous an app as Strava which is something as you know that people can track their training on but it's also a social media platform. So it's it's quite different than training peaks that we use which is not a social media platform at all. But what I see with people that are on something like Strava is that every time they go out the door is a race. Yeah. They've got to beat somebody's time maybe it's their own time but they want to move up from being the 12th fastest on this climb to being the 10th fastest on such and such a thing and so um and i don't that's certainly and the antithesis of the way an athlete would train Um, you know an athlete doesn't try to break their own personal best in every workout that would be so counterproductive and so I feel like that's, again, one of those disservices that has sort of inadvertently been foisted on the general public. And it, and, it, and of course, it can create a lot of anxiety when you watch on YouTube or read on someone's you know, um, Instagram post about some amazing feat that they've just pulled off that can just make you feel you know insignificant or, well, boy, that's a lot faster or a lot bigger or a lot better than what I do. And so I think that's, an, that's a sad commentary on us that we, we have that. Um, and so I don't know a, a solution to it, honestly. Um, but I think having some perspective around it and noticing that, you know, Again, what athletes do is, you know, the reason something like the Olympics comes around every four years is that they people can target this one event every four years, and that's where they're going to perform their best. They're not performing at that level every every darn day. They just can't do it. No one can do that. But that's the perception that people have, because when you go on Strava or on some of these other things, there's always somebody that's faster than you. There will always be someone faster.
0: Yeah. Yeah, what's interesting about, I think, um, training outdoors, for instance, is, I don't know, I just think there's something to be said for training outdoors and training towards um, pursuits in the outdoors, I guess, having that be part of the process as opposed to, you know, training to hit, uh, like to beat somebody on Strava or to hit, you know, to break like uh, the six-minute mile or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, But at the same time, I guess the people who I know who – are really into outdoor sports and training are often the same people who are like stacking themselves up against their friends and who are, you know, even if they're, even if it's not a bad thing, uh, you know, competing uh, in like a malicious way, they're still like, oh, you, climbed a harder route than me or whatever, like, I got to go climb that route too. Or like, oh, you broke my record on that trail? Like, I got to go try to one-up you. It's sort of covert competition.
2: Yeah. You know, in conventional sports, we have a really easy way to deal with competition. And it's called a stopwatch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody lines up at the start. They shoot the gun, and the first guy across the line is clearly the w- winner, First or first woman across the line is clearly the winner. and But in these... Unconventional mountain sports that many of us, or especially that we focus on, in many cases, there aren't that that competition element is more in the covert realm. And I think that's not a very healthy thing for people. Hmm. I mean, I, during the early part of my coaching career, I coached junior cross country skiers. And especially with the teenage girls, covert competition was just endemic in them. Um, and it, it was really challenging for me to, to try to deal with that. But as, as they watched each other I mean, they were, you know, there was the whole cattiness and backstabbing and fighting over boys and all the typical teenage things. But also just this, they had to be faster than each other in every practice or those kinds of things. And that's from a performance standpoint, long term, that's a downward spiral that's going to take you down into a big hole. Hmm. And so, but I see that has migrated over to some extent to the adult realm too, where people are so caught up in this sense of, you know, how fast was I on this
0: Strava leg, for instance. Uh, well, let's transition to talking a little bit about the new book. So you guys published an alpinism training book five years ago, I think. Yes. And this one you did with Killian Jornet, who's, you know, obviously at the top of his game as a mountain runner. Um, and I think he actually studied exercise science at university. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I was just wanted to ask, what did Killian bring to the table? Or what did he bring to your understanding of how a training book needs to work, what it needs to cover, what it needs to do? Probably one of the most important things that I'll say up front about
2: working with Killian on this book is that we tried very hard to not, to make it not be a book of what Killian does. Right. (laughs) Because very few people could pull that off. He's a bit of an outlier. Yeah, very much so. You know, whether it's, you know, he's was in the right line when they were handing out the endurance genes, or just due to his training, or something. But he's got all the cards that he needs. Um, so we wanted to be very careful in the approach that we used. That was these time-tested principles that he uses with his own training, but not set him up as an example, because I think that's really dangerous to try to copy what a champion does for most people. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it could be extremely dangerous for someone to read in a magazine, how, so the training that someone did for six weeks before they broke the world record and then try to emulate that because they're not, they probably don't have the 20 years of training that that person who set the world record had leading into it. So, and we wanted to write a book that would, was for the amateur because we figured, Professional mountain runners and ski mountaineers, ski mountaineer racers already have coaches or they've already figured it out on their own and they, they might get something out of the book, but that's not really our audience. Our audience is the people who don't have access to this kind of information, to high level coaching and to what, what high level athletes actually do. And so this was sort of an inside peek at how, how a, a, an elite athlete would train, but scaled to the level of an amateur. I mean, not that there's there's some imposing training programs in there and then you know running a hundred miles is no mean feat for anyone um, so they're they're challenging so that I wouldn't I don't want to dim- diminish their um, difficulties but we just wanted to make it be something that people could um, relate to and it was accessible to them and not have it be in the language being be too scientifically uh, wordy and also, not just gloss over stuff and and write a prescription and say do this do this do this what instead it we try to do is present those the very the first principles around why you train this way and then explain how that training works on your body and then how what types of workouts you would do to to achieve these particular particular results and then how to assemble the whole thing into a plan Um, i was fortunate really last year to be working so closely with Killian after he'd had a couple of pretty significant uh, surgeries. So he was laid up because he's a very difficult guy to to actually get time, face time with. But he had uh, shoulder surgery after a fall during the Hard Rock 100 race. And so he was laid up for a month or so after that surgery. And so he and I could spend a lot of time going back and forth and collaborating on some of these ideas. And then, unfortunately, later, or early last winter, he had a bad um, break of his, one of his legs uh, in a ski race. And then, once again, he had some, a f- few weeks where he was uh, incapacitated, and I could actually corner him and get, get him on the phone or get him on email. Um, because, like I said, he's when he's not sleeping, he's actually out doing something. <laughs> so he doesn't spend a lot of time on the computer.
0: Yeah. Something that this book made me wonder about, also your last book about alpinism also, it seemed inherent in those books. There was this message of like, we are just scratching the surface of what's possible on these mountains at these higher elevations. And so as we gain more understanding of these environments and endurance training at these levels, and these sports and activities become a little more established, if that's the right word to use. I I wanted to ask you guys what you see as the potential in these places. Like how much more performance can happen in these places that isn't happening now?
1: Boy, I think we have, as you alluded, I think we have a long ways to go in terms of the absolute limits of human performance in these sports. And it's for a variety of reasons. I think with mountain running, let's take that, I mean, that's an easy example, it's just really small. It's not that competitive yet. Like the the really good runners are competing, you know, for trying to break a two hour marathon and like going for Olympic gold medals and things like that. So I don't think that, um, you know, mountain running is really that internationally competitive yet. Wait till the Kenyans get into the sport, as I say. You know, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of not. Like yeah. the most competitive running race in the world is probably the tryouts for national team for the Kenyan cross country running team. You know, that you know, there's only however many spots, and there's hundreds of men and women deep the the field. So, um, in terms of climbing and, and mountaineering, I think it's a similar thing, in that, but even more. Um, more, uh, juvenile in terms of its development, because I mean, as far as I know, I'm the first Mountaineer to ever engage in really organized training with a coach. And I mean, I'm still active. It does this, the history of this isn't very big. Mm-hmm. So we, especially with the training for the new Alpinism book, really were trying to change the culture and say, look, th- you know, up until now, which is, you know, over two hundred years of mountaineering history, people have just gone out and climbed mountains and climbed rocks and it's worked. You know, they got better yeah. because they spent more time doing it. But there's this whole like intellectual framework we can borrow from the endurance world and this is how it works. And that was totally new. And, you know, it used to be not that very long ago, ten years ago, that was there was maybe I could probably count on one hand the number of mountaineers. That, actually used a coach at all let alone on a daily basis and now we have you know a hundred of them or more in training just ourselves and i'm sure there's other coaches also working out there so um that's that's changing the culture people are now thinking like okay yeah if i want to do something like climb mount everest or if i want to climb mount mckinley or if i want to you know have a great summer uh, you know bagging peaks in the sierras or the cascades i'm gonna like spend my winter on a training plan and, and like try to get fitter at this. So I think that that's really changing the culture. Are there any milestones or, uh,
0: records or anything like that that you guys would look at that might give some kind of indicator of our progression in these places?
1: Yeah. I think that there's a lot of, we've talked about this in other ways, but for example, um, we'll just like, it's really simple and concrete. Um, so we use the marathon, record time yeah and that's something where you know it used to be the record you know if we go back a hundred years ago the record would change from like three hours 40 minutes down to three hours and 10 minutes I, i don't remember the exact numbers but there'd be these huge increases from record to record and now the changes are are relatively small just by seconds and there's many years in between, and all these stars have to align. And it has to be the right humidity and no wind, and you know the right pacers and the right team, and just to get one guy to like get close to two hours. And so, like that record is is, is getting pretty like that's the long end of the tail. That like if you look at that curve, like it's getting pretty flat. It's pretty hard to break that record. Yeah. It's a lot of effort, a lot of money, finding the right talent, the right everything has to align. Whereas, like, for example, with, you know, mountaineering, if we don't have, you know, courses or, like Scott was saying, the stopwatch, that doesn't really apply. We don't have competition. But uh, I think the level both of, of climbing in terms of technical level and also in terms of the time it's taking people to do climbs is dropping precipitously from, you know, year to year, from decade to decade. Not as much as it would if there was a... Ten million climbers in the world. There's only a handful of people practicing these sports, mm-hmm. but um, it's it's changing dramatically, and I've I've seen that in, in my in my career for sure.
2: And you know, one of the things that in conventional sports that I think is pretty well understood is that the bigger the base of participation, the higher the peak of performance will be. I think a, a really good example of this is swimming and U.S. swimming. And we are a dominant power and internationally in, in the competitive swimming and it, there are literally millions and millions of kids funneling into that program that in the end give us a Michael Phelps. Mm-hmm. And if there were only you know 2,000 swimmers in this country we probably wouldn't have a Michael Phelps. And I think that's sort of the situation that, that has occurred with climbing but I have a feeling that you know, using the principles that we laid in, out in this book, it may not be very many more years before we get someone, uh, you know, a Killian Jornet figure who has trained since childhood for alpinism who and put all of these, you know, the, the the combination of skill building and fitness that needs to be done in order to excel at it, who enters their 20s and is in a completely different league than You know, even someone like Steve, who, you know, know, Steve, it hit the height of his career, was doing the equivalent of setting world records in the sport, some of which are still unbroken, you know, 15 years later. So, but I think where we could see that development in the sport, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, It'll take, you know, it's going to take some, a unique person, of course, to to put all those pieces together.
0: Yeah. You mentioned Killian's injuries, and that made me think of something. I, you know, I was looking over your book the last few weeks, and I couldn't help but think about um, David Lama and Hans Hansjorgauer and um, and Jess Skelly, who were uh, three of the world's top alpinists who died in an avalanche while climbing um, in Banff National Park um, in Canada. And so, I just, I guess, I wanted to ask: when you think about the importance of fitness, I mean, to most people, it means leading healthier lives, but In alpinism, I mean, it's literally, it can be the difference between living and dying. And so even this book isn't about alpinism, the last one was. I just wanted to ask, how do those risks uh, of performing in these wild environments factor into your thinking when you're putting together a book like this?
1: Well, with mountaineering, uh, you know, if we go back to the roots of it, it's always been uh, a core part of the s- the sport because the longer you are exposed to the elemental risks, uh, whether it's poor weather, uh, an avalanche that you don't expect, those kinds of things, the higher your ex- the higher your exposure. So you, you know it's it, the faster you can be up to the summit and back, the better because it's basically making you safer. And of course, some component of that speed is skill, but uh, another component of it is clearly fitness. And so it's 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 kind of baked in in certain parts in certain aspects of some of these sports so any of the climbing sports for sure um when we get into like uh mountain running it's you know it's it's probably not so important especially since mm-hmm. that's m- more of like a com um uh, a competitive sport even if it's a recreational competition like people try you know people want to know they want to run in western states and they want to complete it and that's the goal you know that's that's totally great um but it's not it's probably not a, a life or death situation for most people yeah with ski mountaineering it can be a little bit different because you have the whole snow component mm-hmm. um and that's a whole nother part of the this, this skills and the knowledge base that you need in terms of how we deal with that with the books is we basically just cut that out we just say look these books are just about the physical preparation. We're not dealing at all with the skills and the intellectual knowledge that you need to evaluate a snow slope for stability or a, a, a climb for, you know, rock potential rock fall hazard or those kinds of things. It's Just like outside of the realm, scope of, of, of what we're doing here. Um, and so, yeah, that's how we deal with it. We just sort of isolate it. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and I will say that there there is a lot to work on. And I, and maybe this is a subject of another discussion, uh, in the future, but I've been working on ways to, you know, utilize technology specifically, you know, video and, and that kind of thing to, to try to teach Alpinists to make better judgments, to make better decisions in the mountains. And that's something that's very, very hard to do. It'd be like, you know, I guess the equivalent is, is, you know, what they do in business school. For example, they read a bunch of business cases and they try to teach, People through exposure, lots of examples, how to make good decisions in the business. Every situation is a little bit different. The risks are different, the amounts, you know, everything about it is different. And it's the same thing in the mountains. Like every part of the decision making process is different because there's so many, there's literally hundreds of variables and they're all different every time. And so um, it's something that can be attempted to be addressed. <laughs> there are ways, um, but it's just not generally our core thing that we're doing with it with the with uphill athlete the book or the or the website
0: right well i don't want to keep you guys too much longer but i had one more question for you and that's basically for a lot of us who live in the city or in the bay area you know we're sort of weekend warrior types kind of coming back to the to john kelly's essay i I guess what advice would you have for people who are living in these flatter more urban environments um, who might want to train for to become better backcountry skiers or trail runners um endurance athletes like things that they can do in their in their environments they're kind of limited environments here
1: well last i checked it's not that flat here <laughs> 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 particularly in, this, in san francisco yeah right but uh i think that there there is a lot you can do with with creativity um i think that it's important to continue to get in the mountains because that's what you Fuels most people's motivation, but figuring out a way to organize that that time in your life to get out consistently and do some training, whether it's on a treadmill in the garage or in the gym or you know running over on Russian Hill, it doesn't really matter. Um, whatever whatever works for you, but getting getting those sessions in on a consistent basis and doing a little something every day is, goes a huge huge distance.
2: Yeah, I would say a full 60 to 70 percent of the people we work with live in an urban environment and are forced to do a lot of their training on gym machinery like stair machines and treadmills and that sort of thing. Um, I, two or three years ago, I trained a guy who's uh, in the financial business world in Manhattan. and. He did every single workout in the stairwell of a huge building, mm-hmm. and there were days when he there were a couple of weekend weekend days where he put in ten thousand vertical feet in a building. Whoa! And so it can't be done, you know. And if you're highly motivated, I think that's the biggest thing is the motivation. And we actually have a little our kind of our company slogan is you can't coach desire. So somebody's got to come into, if somebody comes to us with the desire, we can direct them. But if they don't have that desire and they're not willing to put in four hours in a stairwell, then you know, they're, going to be, they're going to be affected by that. Um, they're just because of these adaptations we've talked about, those are the things that are, there's only one way to accomplish it.
0: Well, this is fun, guys. Thanks very much for coming in.
1: Yeah, thanks for the entertaining conversation. Thanks
2: for having us.
0: Thanks very much again to Scott and Steve for coming on the pod. Their new book, Training for the Uphill Athlete, is available on Amazon, and it's also on their website, www.uphillathlete.com. If you want to keep track of what I'm up to with California travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me, suggestions for who I should bring on the pod next, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, throw me a rating and a review. See you next time.